As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello, Happy New Year and welcome to the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. I'm Ali Maxwell, joined by regular co-hosts Michael Cox and Mark Carey, who cover all things football tactics and data analysis for The Athletic. That's what we're all about here. Hello, Mark. Happy New Year to you. How are you? Happy New Year, Ali. Yes, I'm, I'm very good. Thank you. I'm feeling refreshed and ready to go in 2022. That sounds excellent. Are you someone that makes big plans at the turn of the year or are you happy with the process and continuing to trust it? Yeah, I make no promises. I just just take each day as it comes, Ali. That's a classic football term. <laughs> Michael Cox is here as well. Hi, Michael. <laughs> Hi, Ali. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I quite like this time of year. I like the FA Cup third round. I like the two-legged League Cup semi-finals, even if no one else does. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, pleased to be back on the pod. A few weeks of quiet time for you. You had a, a birthday to celebrate uh, and then Christmas, of course, New Year. On site, we've had a couple of quizzes out of you and then one kind of big picture, big ticket piece, I'd say. Football needs a new era of great players and teams to move the sport forward. What was this one all about? Well, it was a review of the year, really. The headline probably should have specified that um <laughs> at the top but yeah it was just like looking back on on 2021 which i think a year ago a lot of us hoped it would be like a you know fantastic post-pandemic year that um kind of kicked off properly with with the euros and the euros was broadly good i think but of course there were restrictions on stadiums and particularly with how fans could travel and i just looked back at the year and i thought the italy side that won the euros an okay side the chelsea side that won the champions league an okay side Messi winning the Ballon d'Or, you know, probably at least five, maybe 10 years past his best. So I just, you know, kind of weighed that up and thought, to me, we feel like between two great eras or hopefully between two great eras, I think maybe five, 10 years ago, football overall was in a bit of a stronger place than it is at the moment. Mm. Um, but yeah, keen not to just say everything was better in the old days. But football goes through great periods and not so good periods, like everything, like music, like film, like whatever. And I just feel like we're, we're still a little bit coming off the back of the Messi-Ronaldo era. Mm. Um, and of course, some of the big clubs that came five or six years ago as well. Well, I'm obviously excited about everything you'll write in 2022, but I'm intrigued by what your review of this year might be given that the World Cup in Qatar will be uh, just finished at that point. It remains to be seen whatever anyone's plans are for the year. Thank you for choosing to continue to listen to us and here's to a, a great year sifting through football's rich tapestry of, of tactics and tactical trends. Uh, before we get into this week's topic, something frivolous during research for this pod, I started thinking about New Year's resolutions as football tactical tweaks. And I'd like to present the top three to you, Michael and Mark. I've picked basically the three fairly standard things that people generally say they'd like to do more at the start of a year. One of them is sleeping more. Now, I think this is comparable to a switch to a three at the back system. We've seen a lot of people in football move that way over the last year or so. There's a sense 
like with sleeping more, that it feels like a defensive move. You know, you're not exactly attacking life if you're spending it in bed. But actually, if you get it right, you should find a big improvement in all areas of the pitch slash your life. Uh, the second one is exercising more. This, for me, in a football sense, is a move towards pressing with more intensity, pressing higher up the pitch, more energy expended, sure, and it sounds tiring and it might hurt at times, but once you get used to it, you'll feel energetic rather than tired, energised by it, snapping at the heels of life and winning high turnovers, leading to high-quality chances with the defence <laughs> scrambling. And then finally, drinking less. This doesn't apply to everyone, but... I dare say to some listeners and maybe to some of us as well this is an attempt to stop taking so many shots from range we know that these are low quality chances yes the crowd are urging you to shoot yes it looks fun and in the right situation it might fly in the top corner every now and again you're going to score an absolute belter but in general reducing those shots both footballing and liquid should lead to a more sustainable high quality life what do you reckon to that? Yeah, quite enjoyed that. Can't argue with any of the analogies. I think it works quite well. Well, good. I'm very impressed. I'm glad to hear it. That's pretty much it for me for the rest of the episode because we're leaning <laughs> on an old friend to kick off the year, the Notebook-style pod, and we're leaning on you guys, really, to catch us up because it's been a busy few weeks of Premier League action, hard to stay on top of for, for many of us, and, and thankfully you guys have kept track of the big stories, the high performers, the poor performers, and we're going to tackle a few of the Premier League's key topics from the Christmas and New Year period in Football Tactics pod style, starting at the very top top of the division if you took a two-week break from watching Premier League football from let's say the 20th of December until the start of this week the first thing you'd notice looking at the league table is Manchester City's three-point lead at the top of the division is now a 10-point lead at the top of the division 10 points to Chelsea and 11 to Liverpool albeit having played a game more they've won 11 Premier League games in a row 13 out of 14 Michael talk me through some of Manchester City's notables over this period yeah, it's been a funny period. I mean, the last two match days, both Chelsea and Liverpool have dropped points. Of course, one of them because they, they played each other and drew. I don't think Manchester City have actually been overwhelmingly impressive in any of the three games over the Christmas period for different reasons. Leicester, they briefly looked like blowing a 4-0 lead, which would have been remarkable. I think only the second time in Premier League history that would have happened. Uh, Brentford was, was fine. That was a, a relatively early goal and pretty much getting the job done. And then Arsenal, I thought they were really outplayed in the first half and really dominated after half-time because of the red card in part. Um, the caveat to that is I think they did improve at, at half-time against Arsenal. I think early on they really struggled to play through Arsenal's press, which worked very, very well. Um, I thought they went longer. They went into Gabriel Jesus a little bit more. And of course, that move really was what brought the red card with Gabriel's second yellow. So they, they do deserve some credit for that. Interesting stat I saw on Twitter from Orbino, who, who tweets a lot about Arsenal statistics. It's the fourth time this season in 21 games that Manchester City haven't had a shot on target in the first half, which I thought I would have guessed they hadn't done that for years before that Arsenal game. But it seems they've done it three times already, which considering they actually start games very quickly most of the time, just struck me as very odd. Do we think that is a reflection of how basically every Premier League side bar Liverpool now sets up to play against Manchester City and will have such onus on those opening stages, such onus on not going behind earlier because we know how the game can get away from you against City. Or might there be something larger at play with with uh, something, dare I say it, wrong with their approach to the start of games? I mean, like I said, when you look at their overall statistics in terms of when they score goals, they actually tend to score a lot in the opening 15 minutes. And and get the job done relatively quickly. But it seems like there are some games where if they don't get an early goal, they just are very patient. And obviously it's working very well for them. Of course, the Arsenal victory was uh, their latest of the season with that late Rodri goal. And I thought it was quite interesting, not necessarily the fact that he finished the move, but the fact he was up there in the penalty box to, to kind of win a, or challenge for a high ball in the first place. Because I was watching the game and after Arsenal went down to 10 minutes, I didn't think they were too much in danger of conceding a second goal Arsenal I thought they were relatively comfortable and I was thinking maybe this is the type of goal where Manchester City lack that archetypal penalty box striker you know when the opposition are just sitting on the edge of their own box and I did wonder you know 
thinking of previous Manchester City strikers and thinking if they had an Eddie and Dzeko figure here, they'd probably be more dangerous. Paul Dekoff. Well, maybe. <laughs> but the Eddie and Dzeko figure in the end was Rodri, who of course is a defensive midfielder, but very good in the air, does score a, a fair few goals at set pieces with his head. And I wonder whether that might be a bit of a a bit of a, a future tactic for Manchester City for the rest of the season. If they're struggling in Champions League games, you know, they need a goal with 10 minutes to go. Maybe it will be that Rodri is actually their best aerial weapon. Because I remember mm. Guardiola doing something similar with Gerard Piquet in that famous Champions League semi-final against Inter in 2009. I think he used Xavi uh, Martinez at, at Bayern Munich as a bit of a supplementary forward at times because he was very good in the air. So yeah, without a proper number nine, I wonder whether there'll be one or two other occasions this season where, I don't know, maybe they shift Gundogan a little bit deeper and move Rodri up front to become their very temporary centre-forward. It's not just because this player has been dominating England's second tier, the Championship this season, but for some reason, my mind goes to Alexander Mitrovic because one of you, Michael, I think it was, said Mm -hmm. over the summer that Mitrovic, who's a confusing player in that people will point to never having been prolific at Premier League level, having only played for Newcastle or Fulham in, in that time. Uh, and you've you've always seen him as someone who, theoretically, it seems unlikely to happen, but could do a job for one of the very top teams as that Llorente type, the, the, the second-choice striker for a quote-unquote plan B. Yeah, I quite like it when clubs just sign a, a dedicated plan B. I think Llorente is a really good example, someone who I think he scored 15 goals for, for Swansea Um in a season where they went down, but it, it did make sense to get him in as a, an alternative to Kane. Um, and I do just quite like watching old school penalty box strikers. I really enjoyed watching a AC Milan game recently where they had Giroud and Ibrahimovic on the pitch at the same time. Hmm. Feels like they were two plan Bs in uh, in one. Mark, last season there was a period where Manchester City won 15 games in a row from mid-December until March in the Premier League. They're on 11 at the moment. I mean, when comparing Manchester City's underlying data to other clubs, I suppose it, it could be more apt to compare Manchester City's numbers to their own numbers from previously dominant seasons. How do they compare? Yeah, I mean, given that they are kind of in a category of their own, I know Liverpool have kind of pushed them close in in recent years, but it is best to only compare them to themselves. I mean, kind of as Michael said, they haven't been maybe as convincing in their performance despite picking up points um, so consistently recently. But I mean, this season, they're averaging 2.5 points per game uh, this season, which is, of course, you know, title winning output. And it's obviously the best in the league so far. But it's actually lower this stage after 21 games played than um, when they won the title in 2017-18 which was that season where they got 100 points so of course that was an exceptional year anyway they're averaging 2.8 points at the same stage um, in that season and then I looked at what the the highest points per game was after 21 games in the past 10 seasons to see who actually was you know the highest in recent years and it's quite interesting to see that Liverpool in 2018-19 averaged 2.9 points per game um, at this stage um, which was the season that they actually were pipped to the title by uh, City so they didn't actually go on to win it that year so uh, point being essentially that they are kind of comfortably top um, this year but maybe not necessarily on the levels that we've maybe seen in recent seasons but obviously it's because they are exceptional mm-hmm. uh, as a side and have been for, for many years now Are we ready to call the title? Is 10 points to Chelsea 11 points to Liverpool albeit with the Reds having a game in hand Mark is that too much even at this stage? That seems to be kind of the narrative, doesn't it? That it's it's too much. I mean, the great thing about football, that's why we love it, is that things can change so quickly. I mean, you know, Liverpool still have to play City, so Chelsea as well, you know, again. Um, so you, you never know. One, you know, if Liverpool beat City and then there's another slip up elsewhere, a couple of draws here and there, then, you know, could go into the final months thinking that there's a chance. But at this moment in time, looking back, you don't think the City are going to drop too many points. So... I think the thing for me as well is just how good they are in defence as well. City barely give up any any shots, hmm. you know, let alone goals. They're they're averaging just six point seven shots uh, conceded per ninety. And again, they've earned that's in the past ten seasons um, the best apart from that twenty seventeen eighteen season where they can averaged um, a conceded shots of six point three per ninety. So as much as anything, they just you just don't look like you can get really a sniff out of City. So. You know, they're still strong in attack, don't get me wrong, but I just don't think that you can really get much out of them in terms of trying to at least get a goal. 
in more than half of their Premier League games this season, they have faced two shots on target or fewer. Three times they haven't faced any. Five times they've only faced one. And another five times they've faced two. Uh, four times they've fa- faced three. Three times four. And the outlier was Leicester City, who had eight shots on target against them in that 6-3 game on Boxing Day. Of course, City taking the lead. And such a, a huge lead so early there, which I dare say played a part in that. Michael, uh, they have none of the league's 10 top goal scorers individually. But they have 12 players who have scored two goals or more in the league already this season. Now, the next best team for comparison is, I think, Manchester United and Liverpool perhaps have seven players who have scored two goals or more in the league. City have 12. If at Barcelona, Pep's most sort of pioneering aspect was the style of play, tiki-taka being the, the term that got adopted for better or for worse, could his Manchester City legacy be this incredible spreading of goals and goal threat, this goal-scoring roulette. Yeah, it does feel like something slightly new. I mean, we saw it last season to an extent, obviously. Uh, Gundogan was a top goal-scorer from midfield with his late running. Um, but yeah, it is very different from what we've seen previously. I mean, we associate Guardiola often with playing without centre-forward, but there's a huge difference between not playing with a centre-forward when your, your central forward is Messi, who's the greatest <laughs> goal-scorer in La Liga history. Uh, or he is now, he wasn't at the time, obviously, and doing what they are at the moment, where not just they don't have an out-and-out striker, but, I mean, it changes every week. The three games over over Christmas, I think the, the centre-forwards were Bernardo Silva one game, then Jack Grealish the next game, and then Gabriel Jesus, who, OK, is, is maybe more natural as a number nine, but actually has played on the right more and I think prefers that position. So, yeah, it is it is remarkable. I'm... I still think there are some situations, as I say, at the end against Arsenal where they do need a proper centre-forward and they probably are going to win the league. I think if they if they don't win the league, they will collapse, not because they're conceding too many goals, but because they, they fire a blank in a couple of games. But that seems unlikely. So, yeah, it is remarkable what they're doing. And I I guess the, the question is whether they can whether they can do it in the Champions League. That's, that's the final... Um, the final frontier, isn't it? They, they obviously fell short last year against a side who, in a way, were playing a similar system with Havertz and Werner, no dedicated centre-forward. But yeah, it has been fascinating to watch. Yeah. And at times, I think it's worked really well. I think I said before, the, the first half away at Watford, I thought that was just fantastic football and showed what they were all about and, and how they didn't need a centre-forward. And trying to find faults or issues or weaknesses is, is kind of like trying to find a, a wonky brushstroke in the Sistine Chapel. But uh, any issues, Michael, that you've spotted, however small? Because, of course, if they do go deep into the Champions League and they play the very best teams in one-off games or two-legged affairs, they will be looking very deeply at something to exploit. The only thing I have a question mark about is is Edison sweeping. I think he makes a lot of slightly rash errors um, when he comes out and, and tries to almost tackle the ball. He, he got away with one against Newcastle. There was a penalty shout against Arsenal. There was a penalty a few weeks ago he conceded. I can't remember who it was against off the top of my head. Um, but he's done it a few times. There was a, a period about two or three seasons ago where I think he conceded three penalties in, in four or five games with similar situations. I mean, he's an excellent goalkeeper in terms of his distribution. Um, and I think, by and large, when he sweeps a long way out of his box, he, he tends to get the decisions right. But... He does have this habit of kind of going to ground unnecessarily. That I mean, it only has to be a one-off incident where he gets something wrong and it can completely, obviously, throw the game. Um, you could make an argument that he didn't sweep successfully for the uh, for the Kai Havertz goal in the Champions League final as well. So that's one area where I think maybe they are a little bit suspect defensively. But certainly in terms of how the back four is playing and how how will they protect the back four? I mean, you know, there's so many statistics you can you can knock out about this. Um, but they, they basically, their XG is almost always under about 0.8, um, which basically indicates you're, you're unlikely to consume mm. any goals. This is the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. We start 2022 by opening the Premier League notebooks of Mark Kerry and Michael Cox to get up to speed after a whirlwind two weeks in England's top tier. Next up, hear about possibly the best game that we saw in that period. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Now, guys, at, at halftime of Chelsea 2, Liverpool 2 on Sunday... If you'd had a browse of Twitter, you'd have been forgiven for thinking that we'd seen the greatest game of all time, let alone the greatest game of the Premier League's Christmas and New Year period. Michael, it finished 2-2. It slowed down a little in the second half. Is it the game of the season in the Premier League so far? Uh, No, I don't think it is. I think it was the best first half of the Premier League season so far. I can't argue with that. I think the best second half of the Premier League so far was Liverpool 2, Manchester City 2. And I think the best overall game was Tottenham 2, Liverpool 2. So I think the best first half, the best second half and the best game have all involved Liverpool and have all finished 2-2. Um, it was brilliant. I mean, the first half was fantastic. I thought it was a good example of the fact that you generally don't get that level of intensity throughout a 90 minutes. It, it, you know, if it starts really, really quickly, I think sometimes it, um, it can tail off. And I think you'd always rather have the second half as the better half because it builds up to something rather than goes a little bit flat. So I would go for that uh, City-Liverpool game um, ahead of this one in terms of being a great game. Um, But yeah, it was fantastic. The first half was brilliant. I'm actually, I'm going to re-watch it because it was so, you know, when games are so high tempo and so frenetic, there's so many things going on that I don't think you can really Mm. get your head around first time of watching. So I I haven't had the time yet, but I'm going to, Maybe Friday morning I'm going to sit down and watch that again because it was so good. We did a whole episode last year basically ranking the best games of the Premier League season from last season and then using that to try and work out what the variables are that that build a sort of objectively entertaining game for the neutral to watch. And, and one of those things, Michael, was... Uh, two high defensive lines, which <laughs> definitely contributed to what we saw at Stamford Bridge on Sunday. Yeah, I don't want to go down the route of saying I didn't enjoy the game because the defending was so bad because I did really enjoy the game. I didn't think the defending was necessarily bad, but I think they did both invite problems. I thought particularly the way Chelsea got in really easily behind Liverpool's defensive line, the the Pulisic uh, finish was fantastic, but it just felt really easy to breach that Liverpool defensive line. Um, And you can say the same at the other end as well. So... Yeah, uh, I think when you look at some of the the kind of freeze frames from the game and there's almost only about 30 yards between the two defensive lines when the ball's in midfield, um, that felt a little bit too extreme (laughs) for me. Mark, the the game felt breathless to watch and I'm interested to know if digging into the numbers after the game, whether we can find that feeling of breathlessness in the numbers as well. Yeah, I'd say so. And just to kind of echo what Michael said as well, it was just kind of chaos at times especially in the first half which again was great to watch but I imagine for both of the respective managers it was just so frustrating to to see because there was kind of things that were somewhat preventable um, but yeah I mean I wrote a piece about it after after the game that went on site on Monday morning and it kind of felt deserving of its own analysis especially that first half because I wanted to see whether the data kind of as you say Ali backed up what we could see with our eyes and I think one of the things that I found interesting was just kind of the number of possessions um, in that first half. And I, I use the word possessions plural there. Um, so essentially looking at how many occasions the, the ball changed hands between the two sides or, of course, feet between the two sides. And a higher number of possessions is a kind of indicative of more of a frenetic, high tempo game. And again, the numbers would obviously back up what, what the eyes can see in the first half, specifically look, comparing against other first halves this season the the first half um, had 65 possessions uh, in total and that was the second highest uh, number in a first half in a Premier League uh, game since other than um, Burnley's 3-1 home defeat I think it was to uh, to Brentford or maybe they won no they won but yeah that's right yeah yeah. that's right yeah this is interesting Um, to me Mark because the 
there's a there's a there's a saying in English football which is it was like a basketball match today. Yeah. And really what that what that indicates or what that measures with one's eyes is possession changing hands a lot. And that's interesting because in the sport of basketball and in the NBA and in analysis of that sport, they use number of possessions to measure essentially the tempo of a basketball match as well. No, exactly. Yeah, it was it was just chaos. And I think there was sort of mentioned it in the piece that it was as much as it was kind of kind of some good pressing in places I think it was as much as anything especially on Liverpool's side it was just some poor passes there were quite a few passes that went astray and maybe that was because the pitch was so kind of congested because of the respective high lines so it all kind of ties in together but I think Liverpool's pass completion in that first half was the their lowest in the first half of the season or maybe that was even across the whole game so it showed that there was kind of maybe unforced errors at times or or maybe the you know the opposition for both teams sort of forced them into those errors. I mean, it's interesting you say, Mark, about comparing it to that um, Burnley-Brentford game because stylistically, that's the complete opposite end of the scale. I mean, when you look at the statistics, it's kind of a group of three, Burnley, Brentford, Watford, and besides, you don't have a high pass completion rate. They win lots of aerials. And you completely understand why there's going to be a lot of turnovers in, in games like that because of they're playing quite direct. But it's quite funny that the the highest turnovers can either be, you know, almost yeah. the best first half we've seen or, and I didn't see the whole 90 minutes of Burnley Brentford, but presumably a fairly rudimentary, uh, not long ball game, but as close as a long mm. ball game as you'll get in Premier League. Yeah, and that's, this is why I love statistics because you can surround it with that context and if obviously you understand the the style behind it, you know why that kind of is the case and to suggest that, that Burnley and Chelsea and Liverpool are kind of have a similar style would be obviously wrong so it's clear to, to see that it's yeah Burnley style to maybe hit them long and kind of work off second balls and do that at the risk of turning over possession but maybe winning it high up as a consequence because Burnley are kind of a quirk as well where they they win the ball uh, very high up which again you might think of that as a team who sort of presses high but it's more that they kind of lump it long essentially and kind of win second balls and try to to build an attack from there so yeah that's that's what's great about stats is that you can build the context around it. I want to ask you both about the teams involved individually because of course these are Manchester City's challenges for the title as far as we know it albeit that gap has grown uh, and and Mark during a season every team have peaks and troughs generally for Liverpool more peaks than troughs uh, does this feel like the toughest period for them so far this campaign obviously fixture this does come into it obviously doesn't it I mean they they had a they played against a rejuvenated Spurs team it was a tough game against uh, Leicester and obviously a tough game against Chelsea as well I think there's always, as is often the case for every team, there's always some key moments within those games, isn't there? I mean, there was the the penalty shout for, for Jota against um, Tottenham where he was essentially barged and a lot of people said after the game that he was deserving of a penalty. So that could have changed the game and you look at a different result there maybe. And in the game against Leicester, Mane missed a, what I think is a clear-cut chance. All he needed to do was kind of lift it over Schmeichel when he was essentially one-on-one and that could have then put Liverpool ahead and the whole game state changes, etc. Um but those are the fine margins, aren't they? Especially at the sort of the top end of the league. So, yeah, I think this is their sort of toughest period. They have had sort of issues around uh, winter periods um, in seasons gone by. I think it was obviously to do with injuries, but last season around January, they kind of capitulated as well. So the main thing now is getting back to, to winning ways and at least putting some pressure on City um, as well as Chelsea putting pressure on City as well. Because I think for all of us fans, we want to see a at least a two-horse race, hopefully a three-horse race to to not see City just kind of stroll to the title. Michael, it's been a fairly dramatic few weeks for Chelsea as well. On the pitch, they've drawn four games out of their last five in the league, which has seen them concede ground to the the winning machine that is City. What's not quite working at the moment? Why are these draws and not wins? Yeah, they haven't been impressive. Um, and you have to say probably out of the, the title race now, although I think I think not this weekend, but next weekend they are playing Manchester City, so they do have an opportunity to to cut the deficit. But yeah, I'd say there's three issues. Uh, I think three quite obvious issues. Um, one is the absence of the wing backs. I mean, James and, and Chilwell were so influential, not just in terms of the crossing, not just in terms of the goal scoring, but in terms of the fact there were so many good rotations with those players coming inside and often creating really good attacks from central positions. Um, and the replacements they've got, I just don't think are quite up to it in, in terms of uh, in terms of that technical side mm. of the, the game. Um, Pulisic had a couple of cameos at right <laughs> wing back, which I mean, once you've once your eyebrows stop being raised at the very concept, I think there have been some 
half-decent moments and impressive work rate. And obviously, in terms of pure technical ability, he has the he has the quality to impact games if he can stay disciplined in a position that he hasn't played a lot. Yeah, I don't think it's been disastrous. I agree with you. I think he's um, he's adapted well when he's played there, and of course, probably will be particularly pleased he scored against Manchester City to prove that he's still uh, useful in his natural position as well. Um, I'd say second issue would be uh, Chalaba, right side of centre-back. I haven't really seen anyone say this, so I, maybe I've uh, overlooked some of his good performances. And I think he's had a really good season so far, obviously his first full Premier League season. But I thought he struggled in the first half against Aston Villa. Um, they actually made a, a substitution to take him off put uh, Pulisic at uh, right wing back and drop as Pulisic back. And I thought that really improved Chelsea with Lukaku coming on up front. He got the winner. Um, and I thought in the in the first half against Liverpool in a really frenetic tempo, I think he, he struggled a little bit. Didn't cover himself in glory for the first goal scored by Mane. Um, so yeah, I think overall he's been a big positive for Chelsea this season. But it's kind of a knock-on effect from from the wing-back issue. Aspilicueta has had to play more at wing-back, so he's able to play less at right-sided centre-back. Um, and maybe that has been a bit of an issue. Um, and the third one, I, I just don't think they've got the right balance or the right combination in the final third. We all thought that Lukaku would sort out those issues, particularly on his debut against Arsenal when he almost single-handedly won the game. But, of course, that's been an issue on the pitch. Um, and this week, also a bit of an issue off the pitch as well. Mm. Yeah, it certainly has. I mean, Lukaku's interview and the fallout from that, the hysteria, if you like, we're mostly going to ignore that aspect of it. But what I did want to try and do is drill down on what he actually said about football uh, and see if there was any merit to it and see what he was trying to get out. One of the quotes, and I'm aware that the quote that I found has been translated, um, but hopefully not too far away from its true meaning, was Tuchel has chosen to play with another system. That was something that raised a lot of eyebrows, at Michael. Do you think that's true? It's slightly difficult to work out what he means by different, whether he means different to what he was used to at Inter or different to what Chelsea were doing last season. Um, it is slightly different to the role he played at Inter. Inter was a 3-5-2. It was very much a, a front duo with... Uh, with Latoro Martinez and Lukaku, who I think almost played as split strikers in the channels. Lukaku really had a lot of freedom to run inside from a right side of position, cut inside onto his left, or indeed finish with his right. Um, but basically get the ball on the run, going towards goal. And I think now, because Chelsea's stars really are the players in the attacking midfield positions, whether it's Havertz or Mount or Ziyech or Pulisic, I think he's being forced to do more work with his back to goal. And I don't think he, I don't think he's that comfortable with it. But more to the point, I don't think it brings out the best in his own game. So it, I, I kind of understand what he means in terms of it is a different role for him. Of course, whether he needs to go on the record and say that in an interview, while saying that he, you know, is keen to return to his former club, is obviously a different issue. Mm. But I mean, okay, let, again, let's just ignore the naivety of some of the things that he said. Which, as soon as we all saw it, we went, "Ah, oh, mate." Come on. <laughs> and let's just focus in on, let, let's say he was tortured and he had to tell the truth about what he thought from a tactical or for a footballing sense. I mean, is there merit in him complaining about this? Well, Lukaku presumably wants his manager to get the best out of him. And I don't think the way Tuchel has used him necessarily is. But of course, Tuchel's job isn't just to get the best out of Lukaku, it's to get the best out of a whole range of players. And, and Lukaku has to make some level of compromise in terms of, bringing out the best of Mount and Habits and the other attacking players. I think ultimately it's difficult to have a firm opinion on whether it's a justified complaint without knowing what discussion he had with Tuchel at the start of the season. But from what Tuchel says, I mean, he seemed quite perplexed by the whole thing, to be honest. So it doesn't sound like there are any guarantees in terms of Lukaku's role. One thing I'd say is I'm a little bit surprised that we haven't seen Tuchel at least try to use him for more of a right-sided starting position because I think when he's played that role over the years, he did it a couple of times for Everton. He did it really well with Belgium at the World Cup. I, I don't think, think sometimes... I don't think Nacho Monreal will ever forget the time <laughs> that Romelu Lukaku played right wing when he was playing left back. Yeah, that was a it was a particularly difficult afternoon for him. But he's very very comfortable in that position. And I wondered whether Tuchel would try playing almost him on the right, Werner doing a similar thing from the left, and then Mount or Havertz as a false nine or a number ten or whatever you want to call it. So I'm surprised he hasn't tried that on a couple of occasions. But yeah, overall, I think I think Lukaku probably has to accept it. He's a different club. 
a different combination of players. Inter didn't really have any number 10s or playmakers, um, aside from Ericsson, who, of course, was, was generally used deeper. So he's come into different surroundings. He's going to have to play a slightly different role. And it's not like he's being played left wing back. You know, he's just being played in a slightly different forward position. So I find the whole thing a little bit strange. I think it's interesting as well to sort of build off what you're saying as well, Michael, is that it's partly maybe to do with Lukaku himself, maybe Tuchel in terms of the system and stuff, but kind of forget that the opponent also looks into how to, to stop him playing. And I think that, and Chelsea playing as well, and that potentially they're more likely to play in kind of a deeper block where there's there's less room, less room for him to kind of run into and, and operate in. And I think kind of going back to a, an Arsenal player who's, who's absolutely bullied, there was that first game, wasn't it, against Arsenal where Lukaku had Pablo Mari in his pocket. But I think that that was exactly because Pablo Mari played into Lukaku's hands in that he got really tight to him and Lukaku was able to spin off him and do what he does best in terms of his style of play. Whereas maybe opponents kind of know to just take a step off him, a couple of steps off him, let him have the ball, maybe let him turn and then, you know, cut off there or cut off the supply to him altogether. So I think there's maybe credit that has to be given to, I guess, the opponents to to see maybe they're looking to to try and find ways to stop him as well. And that's where he and Tuchel have to think of ways to kind of overcome that issue. Yeah, it's a, it's a, whether or not it's a problem, it has become a problem and uh, it needs to be solved. He's six months into a five-year contract. He's only started eight games in the Premier League so far. So it's uh, all a little bit peculiar, but uh, it was definitely something worth touching on with you guys. Uh, a big news story, certainly in Premier League terms over the last few weeks. Let's move to the north of London, and something a little more positive. Arsenal under Arteta looks good, doesn't it? Four wins in a row before losing late to Manchester City uh, in a, a game that was another cauldron of narrative and bad feeling and angry tweets. Uh, but let's talk about the positives, Michael. It feels like they're becoming much more productive in their play, and that's exciting. I'm sort of hardwired not to get too excited about short-term improvements in Arsenal's results. But is there tangible, sustainable improvement here to think that, that things are worth getting interested about, if not excited about? Yeah, definitely. I think they, uh, they've they steadily picked up the pace over the last couple of months. They got lots of results against the bottom half clubs, if we're being honest. And I think that's why the City performance, particularly the first half, was so positive for them because they were taking on... Um, the best side in the league, a very open game, and I think we're, we're clearly the better side before halftime. We probably could have been two or three nil up, um, and it actually goes back to the kind of thing that Arsenal were doing, broadly speaking, in the first half season that Arteta was in charge. I mean, he won the FA Cup, um, Arteta, after what being as a manager for five or six months. Um, they beat Chelsea and City in the semi-final and final in both very open games by taking the, the game to them. And what Arsenal were doing very well in that period was playing out from the back and, and uh, you know, tempting the opposition up the pitch and playing through them. And we we didn't see that much, certainly not successfully last season, but there's been a couple of occasions um, where they've done it very well in the last few weeks. Yeah, they, they are going very well this season. I think that to sort of pin some numbers to it, as I often like to do, I was looking kind of building exactly what, what you're saying there Michael of looking at their number of sequences ending in a shot this season compared to previous seasons so essentially sequences being simply a, a passage of play um, that is ended at some point by either a defensive action so a, a tackle or stoppages in play so it goes out for a throw in or whatever it might be or indeed a shot um, and this season they're averaging 14.5 sequences that end in a shot per 90 minutes now the number's not sort of to, you don't need to sort of get hung up on that as much to, to kind of know that this is their highest comfortably for the past three seasons. So it shows or maybe suggests that they're having kind of more purpose and more directness, I guess, in their play. And as you say, Michael, building out from the back really well and kind of the outcome of that more recently was a, a really good goal against Southampton, I think it was, right from the back where uh, Lacazette finished it really well. But there's been other examples that obviously led to a shot and not necessarily a goal. I think there was a good opportunity uh, against City as well, where it just shows just how well, how comfortable they are to sort of invite that pressure and then kind of spring forward off the back of it and having more purpose in their possession rather than just kind of possession for possession's sake. Mm. And, and can we say, it's only been a few weeks, hasn't it? But do we think that the Aubameyang situation and his being ostracised somewhat from the team, having been the captain and, and you know, 
pretty much a nailed on starter because of that previously. Can we suggest that's been to the benefit of the development of the team as a whole, do you think, Mark? I'd say so, yeah. And I think that Gabriel Martinelli's been a, a real kind of... He's certainly uh, profited from that, I think. He's come in and done done really well, you know, playing off the left. And I think they're all just... It's a bit too easy to kind of give the narrative that they're all kind of playing without fear and they're playing with the shackles off and stuff. I don't think it's necessarily that, but I just think the combination play between all of those kind of forwards with Lacazette dropping in as more of a kind of a false nine and linking it together there just seems to be a real kind of cohesion um, which I think we'll come on to Manchester United later is kind of square pegs and round holes sort of thing but it just feels like everything kind of fits and, and they they seem to be able to sort of build that really good combination play together thinking of Martinelli, Lacazette obviously Smith-Rowe, um, Saka and, and obviously Martin Odegaard I just think there's a real kind of good alchemy between them. The stars of the side, not just now, for, but for the next two or three years, are clearly Martinelli, Odegaard, Saka, Smith-Rowe. They're the players who Arteta's got to bring the best out of. And if you want to send it forward to bring the best out of some attacking midfielders, it's, it's really not Aubameyang. I mean, I think in terms of, if we can say, elite goal scorers over the last five, ten years, he'd maybe be bottom of my list in terms of link-up play. I just don't think that's in his game at all. Um, and of course, if you remember, Arteta actually was really reluctant to use him as the centre forward for that reason. He often wanted to use him as the left going in behind because he wasn't he just wasn't contributing anything um you know in terms of the build up player. And that's what Lacazette does. I mean Lacazette doesn't score many goals. I think he's only scored one in his last ten maybe or or maybe one non penalty goal in his last ten on. Might be wrong on that. Um but his link up play is very good. He's very good at coming short. He's comfortable with his back to goal. Um, he can play as a false nine or as a kind of back to goal centre forward. Um, so yeah, the, the side looks better without Aubameyang. I don't think you can uh, argue argue with that really. Well, this is the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. We're talking themes from the Premier League's Christmas and New Year period. And next up, we're going to check in with the godfather of the Gagan Press and analyse Ralph Ranić's start to life at Old Trafford. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. So, guys, Michael, more specifically, if Arsenal are looking more productive in their play, gradual improvements, can we say the same about Manchester United so far under Ranić post-Solskjaer? No, no, I've been massively underwhelmed by them, to be honest. They had a good first half against Burnley. Um, I think Broly played very well in that, but I thought the Wolves game, a 1-0 defeat, deserved defeat in my opinion I thought they were really poor I didn't see anything from them in terms of pressing in terms of build up play um, the shape started off as a 4-2-4 switched at half time to 3-4-3 didn't really improve things um, no I've been I've been hugely underwhelmed actually I think they've been pretty poor in recent weeks we'll get through as many aspects of it as we can but given that you mentioned a half time tweak there when we did our Ralph Ranić pod the 4-2-2-2 which I guess is what you've called the four-two-four. There, as we know, there's not a lot between the numbers sometimes. Uh, what are the main issues with that to fit Manchester United's squad at the moment? I mean, first and foremost, I don't particularly like this system. I, if anyone can name a genuinely successful side who's played that system in the last ten or fifteen years, then please contact us. However, you choose. I, I think it's a system often that is based around winning the ball back and pressing and regaining it, which is fine. Um, but they they almost didn't really try to do that against Wolves. That was what he was questioned about after the game. Um, they just couldn't seem to get themselves in in good pressing situations. And I assume that's why that they changed 
at half time to 3-4-3 which was the system Wolves were playing and generally you can go almost man for man and press a bit more easier um, but yeah I mean the system's been strange at times it's been 4-2-2-2 with, with Fernandes and often Sanchez, uh, Sancho very narrow and at other times I mean start against Wolves it almost felt like a 4-2-4 there was lots of width there I think they're probably trying to stretch the play on the outside of Wolves back uh, back three maybe force the wing backs back a little bit but I thought it just left them really exposed in midfield with Matic and McTominay. I think that they just can't cover enough ground in the centre of the pitch. Can't really progress the ball as you'd like from uh, top-class midfielders either. Um, and I think the formation thing's funny because, you know, we say, like I've just done, we say it's 4-2-2-2 or we say it's 4-2-4. But, I mean, if, if it was Roy Hodgson who was using... Ronaldo and Cavani up front with a, a four-man midfield. We just say it was a four-four-two. So <laughs> it is funny how different managers you tend to describe the formation in in different ways. I think going going back to that Wolves game as well. I, I don't know whether you guys have seen it, but we often use some of our kind of graphics looking at passing networks. So it essentially just looks at the average position that each player has kind of touched the ball or you know had an event on the ball and looking at that connection between the players. And more so than the connection between the players, it was just the average position was just really interesting where it's really hard to explain something that's ostensibly visual, but there's just a massive gap between the middle, which is kind of, I guess, a consequence of what you'd get when you've got two in the middle who... When when the two are kind of on the outside as well, just being outnumbered between um, Wolves' midfield and there was just essentially the centre circle just looked completely empty and it just allowed Wolves to just dominate the centre of the pitch and dominate possession at times and it, it just felt like they just didn't quite know what they're doing. It was a bit, a bit like that kind of Morecambe and Wise sketch of playing the right notes but not necessarily in the right order. It still mm. just doesn't feel like they are that every player is kind of comfortable in the position that they're in and it showed kind of as, as much as anything against Wolves. Well, Bruno Lage added sort of insult to injury with his post-match comments when he was pushed to explain you know how what what his game plan was in in order to win this game Michael he made it sound fairly straightforward and and I hope I'm not misquoting him here but essentially the key to it seems to be what are Manchester United's fullbacks doing and depending on what they were doing in and out of possession well we know what to do in response both to stop United from hurting us and also to exploit any space that there might be when we have the ball uh if it is quite so simple that again doesn't bode well albeit we're only a few games in that was an interesting interview and it was also interesting that Ragnar was asked really I mean why why Manchester United weren't pressing and he kind of just said we couldn't get ourselves into the situations to press which I find odd I mean they pressed very well in this first game um, they re- particularly first 20-30 minutes they regained the ball very quickly and it just seems like they've done it less and less um, over the last few weeks. Maybe they're a little bit tired. It's a, a busy Christmas period. I know the training ground has been closed for a few days because of a COVID issue. So we do have to make some allowances for that. But I mean, Rangnick is all about pressing. And I think in the opening weeks, we expected a very high intensity and maybe the, the stuff with the ball would come a little bit later. But I don't think they're ticking either box at the moment. I mean, this was their first defeat under Rangnick. But I must say, I, I, I haven't really been impressed by them in many of the games, I think they were poor against Newcastle, a little bit lucky to hang on against Norwich. Uh, Burnley, they were good going forward in the first half, but I thought a little bit exposed without the ball. They made Aaron Lennon look like some kind of genius number 10, the amount of uh, time he was getting on the ball between the lines. So, yeah, very odd lack of improvement, I would say. Let's not besmirch the good name of Aaron Lennon, who has 21 England caps, need I remind you. <laughs> Yeah, not many as a number 10, though, it must be said. Well, maybe that's what was missing in that period. <laughs> Mark? Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, um, on the note of the, the pressing, though, I do find it interesting. I think it's a good point from Michael that we are seeing the, the Christmas period and there's a lot of fixtures, so potentially teams are, you know, maybe looking after themselves a little bit in terms of that high-intensity work. But it, it was still interesting to see that United, against Burnley and against uh, Wolves, it was amongst their lowest, not the lowest, but amongst their lowest um, pressing intensity in terms of their PPDA, passes per defensive action of the season, which was interesting. But I think kind of winning the ball really high up, which was kind of key to the Ranić style, was was interesting. That A lot was made of that um, that game against Crystal Palace was that, that stat that was thrown around that they won possession in the final third on 12 occasions, which... I think was the joint highest uh, again, you know, occasion since Sir Alex Ferguson left the club. 
and then since then in the subsequent games they've they've won the ball back in the final third just it was just five times against Norwich four times against Newcastle twice against Burnley and four times against Wolves so showed a real spike in that Crystal Palace game almost to sort of satisfy the fans maybe to suggest that they are doing what Ranić you know asked of them early on and it feels a little bit maybe like they've kind of reverted to type a little bit and I know that game state comes into it and and they do want to maybe look after themselves in terms of that high intensity but I don't know, or maybe they're, they're absolutely exhausted from the demands of the training because Ranić's got them working really hard. I don't know, but um, it just seems a little bit like they've kind of gone back after a step forward. Mm. Any positives so far? Scott McTominay's performance, perhaps? Yeah, I'd agree with that. I mean, he is the player you would expect to to work under Rangnick. I mean, he's, he's very energetic. He's very hardworking. Unlike some of the other big players, I don't think he's going to be wandering around saying, oh, haven't been able to express myself here. I think he's just happy to do his job for the team. But I do always think that when a side is underperforming, it's often the most energetic midfielder who people say, oh, he's doing quite well because just covering ground looks more impressive in a in a poor side than obviously the uh, the more creative players who it's not quite clicking for. So yeah, McTominay has been good. And I do like McTominay. I think he'll have a role at Manchester United for many years. But uh, yeah, if McTominay is your main positive, I'd say maybe things aren't going particularly well. Now for our last page of the notebook, we're looking at the relegation battle. Before we get there, I just want to note the fact that the Premier League's only Christmas tree formation did not have a happy Christmas period. Two defeats out of two for Aston Villa, uh, a, a decent display against Chelsea and in parts against Brentford, but it didn't get past me that Brentford's winning goal was scored by a wing-back, Ruslev, with the left-back target having been sucked into the centre to, to help his centre-backs. And obviously, Ruslev, the wing-back, uh, not being tracked by any winger because there aren't any. Um, that was uh, something that I noted. I mean, I personally threw out my Christmas tree yesterday. It'd be interesting <laughs> to see if Gerard does the same. At the bottom... <laughs> Leeds's win was a big one against Burnley. That leaves the bottom of the Premier League table, visually at least, looking like a chunk of four teams fighting for one survival spot, for 17th spot. You've got Watford on 13 points, Burnley on 11, Newcastle on 11 and Norwich on 10. But Burnley have played a game less than Watford and two fewer than Newcastle and Norwich. Michael, would you mind appraising this relegation battle for me at this current moment in time? Yeah, it's a strange one. I mean, Norwich, I, I think, are doomed really already. Why? Because, they, I mean, I'm asking that question because mathematically, mm -hmm. they're absolutely not doomed. If you take any and all context out of it, if you just look at the numbers in the league table, there's not that many points to make up. And it's a funny league uh, at the moment where, as things stand, there's almost four sides adrift. I mean, Leeds are on a point per game, 19 from 19 and 16th place. And then there's a six-point gap below them to Watford, Burnley, Newcastle, Norwich. I say that about Norwich, despite the... Um, the mathematical situation because I just I can't really see any positives from them I think they're a really weak side in terms of individuals I think they're actually very different from two years ago two years ago I couldn't believe they got so few points when they had a, a team featuring Pookie Cantwell when he was playing well Buendia Aaron's Godfrey Lewis I think they had six you can probably throw in Krull as well. They're six or seven really good players for Premier League level. But now some of the players, I, I just don't think they're up to it. You know, particularly going forward, I think Josh Sargent has really struggled. A couple of players on the fringes as well when they've come in, I just don't think have impressed. Um, and they've they've already changed managers uh, in Dean Smith. I think they improved a little bit in terms of organisation briefly, but now I've just reverted back to type. They're not going to... The thing, compare them to Watford, for example... Watford might make another managerial change because it's what Watford do. Norwich are in a situation where they know they've got Dean Smith. They know that Dean Smith has experience of getting teams out of the championship. And I think they'll settle for Dean Smith till the end of the campaign. But I can't really see any signs for positivity um, about why they might improve. And I mean, I don't know how Mark feels about goal difference. I often look at goal difference as being sometimes a better measure than points. I think points can be a little bit of a... Uh, a noisy metric. The goal differences are awful. I mean, minus 34, that compared to Newcastle, minus 23, Burnley minus 11. They're just conceding so many goals. They've scored eight in 19. I just can't see a case for them getting out of, of danger. I think, I hope, 
that Mark has a few more layers of underlying stuff to add to goal difference. Otherwise, I'm calling him out as an absolute fraud. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't have at least something prepared. But uh, no, I agree, Michael. I mean, points um, are kind of skewed by outcome, um, but also goals and goals conceded are skewed by outcome. So I obviously went one deeper and looked at expected goals difference um, of all the teams in the Premier League and looked obviously at, towards the bottom. And I think, well, first of all, it's it's interesting to look at expected goals kind of more so than, than goals in terms of uh, the concession uh, of goals, because it can offer that clearer prediction of a team's future performance more so than, than goals and, of course, uh, points. So it's interesting to look at that. And I looked at expect, non-penalty expected goal difference per 90. Um, and yeah, Norwich are right down there, but they're actually not the worst in terms of expected goal difference. Um, so aggregating the... the you know the quality of the chances the team's created and obviously conceded um and the the bad news for newcastle fans is that they actually have the worst expected goal difference which it maybe isn't too surprising but i think considering how we all sort of perceive norwich to be so weak i agree with what you said there michael you would have thought that they might be kind of comfortably at the at the bottom but it's actually newcastle who are worrying times for them of course they've got a big um january ahead i think they've there's rumours, I don't know how strong they are, of uh, Kieran Trippier maybe going in and reinforcing that that right side, whether that's right wing back or or right wing. And I think that Eddie Howe you know, really relies on his his width and width coming from fullback. So maybe that'll help them out a little bit. But yeah, their, their non-penalty expected goals against uh, Newcastle is 1.8. So conceding nearly conceding chances of nearly two goals per game is uh, is quite frightening so they need to certainly change that and quickly um, and yeah I suppose it matches the, the goal difference um, that you said Michael Burnley look like they'll be okay I think as we often do say as a narrative with Burnley they always look like they could be okay despite you know worrying times sometimes mid-season but well they fought these battles a fair few times before haven't they Sean Dyche has mounted on his wall the, the heads of those that he's previously <laughs> conquered. I'm not sure uh, some of the other teams can say the same. So I guess that that does hold some some sort of strength, doesn't it, Michael, in, in how people perceive teams? Does it have merit to do that? Should we look at the past when looking at the future? I think in general, yes. And I always back Burnley to get out of trouble, but they have been, they have been poor this season. And I, I do think it's interesting to go back to what we were talking about earlier. They're only 1-1 in 17, and that's against Brentford. And they're not playing against... What a game, by the way. So many possessions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's it's odd because I think of Burnley as like a side that will really cause the footballing side problems with their style. That's obviously not the case. The, the one side they've defeated is the one side who kind of plays a similar kind of game to them. So I find it, it very odd. I mean, it, people are talking about who the best signing of the season has been so far. And people are talking about Ramsdale and... Sar and Golf for Wolves. I think Corne would probably be up there. It's, he's been brilliant when he's been on the pitch, but has it made them a better side? Probably not. Not because he's done anything wrong, but just because they probably needed more reinforcements. And um, yeah, they don't look good this season. And you do suspect Newcastle might make a couple of signings and get out of trouble. Um, and if so, I can't really see who else Bernie will finish above. That, uh, you know, transfers, transfer rumours is not something we do that often on this podcast, Mark, but it does feel like the, the biggest variable, doesn't it, at this stage, uh, Newcastle's January window. That's not to say the other clubs can't sign players, and I know that Watford fans are excited about the left-back that they signed uh, yesterday, but it, it feels like that's going to be the major player here. Yeah, and I suppose it's quite you know easy to think that just because Newcastle have got loads of money that they can just throw money at the problem, but you know, this is a world where players don't want to get relegated or go to a side where they might be on loads of money, but then be playing in a potentially in the championship. So I think that, you know, it it depends how likely it looks that Newcastle might get out of trouble because players might not want to go there in the short term. Maybe in the long term when Newcastle are, are flying, maybe pushing for European spots in the next few years. I guess that's their plan. But right now it does look quite, uh, quite worrying for them. And yeah, Burnley as well. And maybe they've because they've got a bit of an injection of money. And I think Corne is one of the, the few signings that's outside of the UK as well. I think they're looking a bit further afield. It'd be interesting to see what they do in the market as well. Everyone else all right? Leeds breathing a little bit happily? Yeah, oh, sorry. yeah. I think Leeds is an interesting one because, well, I suppose everyone's been ravaged by injuries, but Leeds have had some some injuries to some really key players. And 
you look at their numbers, their expected goal difference actually puts them in the relegation places, um, which is, you know, worrying times. I think it, potentially their numbers are a little bit skewed by the fact that they've been <laughs> battered by City and Arsenal wasn't a good result. I think Chelsea was a bit tighter, but still, it's not it's not good reading for Leeds. You, you always... <laughs> I say you always, it's only been two seasons now that they've been in the Premier League, but you do feel like they've got enough to, to get out of it. But I think it's very much dependent on having their key players back. Obviously, Phillips being key to that, Patrick Bamford up at the, the top end. I think Leeds have got the third worst defence in terms of the quality of chances that they've conceded. So it's there or thereabouts in terms of relegation sort of form this season. I mean, it'll be tight when it at, at the bottom, but um, I think Leeds potentially have got enough to steer clear of the relegation simply because of the, the quality of the players that they know that we know that they've got to come back okay close the notebooks that's it for this episode we've touched on Manchester City pulling clear at the top of the Premier League we talked Chelsea versus Liverpool then we talked Chelsea then we talked Liverpool then we spoke about Arsenal's improvements and Manchester United's lack of improvement in recent weeks we finished off with a chat about the current relegation picture in the Premier League thank you so much to Mark Kerry and to Michael Cox for joining me on the first of many Football Tactics podcasts brought to you by The Athletic that will be coming to your ears weekly in 2022 if you'd like to read what Mark and Michael are writing and this would be a good time to do so given how refreshed they both seem theathletic.com forward slash tactics That'll see you get a 33% discount on a 12-month subscription. Sign up to The Athletic today. Subscribe to this podcast feed. We'll have a new episode for you this time next week. And thanks as ever for listening to The Athletic Football Tactics Podcast. The Athletic.